welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I'm speaking with Sebastian Chaston, a Professor of Health Behaviour Dynamics at the University, to talk about his groundbreaking research that examines physical exercise, sedentary behaviour and sleep and how too much sitting can undo the benefits of exercise. Seb, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure, Craig. Now this research project sounds incredibly fascinating. Can you outline exactly what it is? Actually, it's more than just a research project. It's, it's been a long a development of the research in the impact of physical activity on health. We've known that physical activity is probably one of the most important things we can do to keep ourselves in good health. Uh, that is to avoid contracting a condition such as cardiovascular diseases or diabetes or even obesity. And it's one of the primary prevention against stroke as well. It's, it's the closest thing we have to a wonder drug uh, or preventative drug. In essence, uh, exercise is medicine. Um, so we knew that. But what we slightly forgot in that story is that the world we live around has become really increasingly good at keeping us sitting. And that's a strange thing because as humans, we are incredibly wonderful machine for movement. We are made to move. We, we are extremely efficient at it. But at the same time, we have this kind of reptilian uh, reflex coming from a long time ago in our history, which is to conserve energy. So we are trying to move away from having to move too much to find source of energy. So that in a prehistorical time, that was trying to find sources close to, to our uh, dwelling. But nowadays it's in everything we do. So we try to do every task we have with a minimal amount of movement because we see that as more efficient and we're incredibly good at it. So we've taken movement away from most activities of daily living and replaced it by sitting. And you can see that in terms of transport, mm -hmm. we, we go from one place to another, not by walking or cycling so much, but much more in cars. Uh, and even like, if you go to the United States of America, the, whole, the entire cities are built around that capacity of cars. So extremely long distances. In Europe, we, we are moving away from that. Uh, you can see that in the way we entertain ourselves, there is a, a bigger preponderance now of spending time in front of screens, watching movies, series, and all these kind of things, or playing video games that are not where you are required often to sit or at least to stand without moving very much. And at work, it's another place where we have organized our workspaces so that we don't have to move at all. And it's a strange thing as a physiotherapist in the 1980s, 90s, there was a lot of problem around back pain, a lot of research around this. And we actually focused that, that research on ergonomics, on making chairs more appealing and more comfortable. Well, we know now that actually one of the great way of preventing uh, back pain is actually to move more. So we are in this conundrum, made to move, but meant to conserve energies. So we know the benefit of physical activity, but at the same time, the question raised about 10 years ago, whether that time we spent 
seating was going to be was detrimental or not to your health. And whether that was, whether you were exercising sometime during the day or not at all. On top of that, you can think about how our sleep are starting to be challenged. Um, we tend to maybe sleep a little bit less, but also the quality of the sleep is like different. We spend again more time in front of blue, blue screens, blue lights, and that changes our way of, of sleeping essentially. So we are then reach a level where we have really good guidance about how much physical activity we should do. And the latest one are from the World Health Organization, 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week or three times, uh, sorry, five times 30 minutes during the week. Actually make every move count. That's the, that's the big message. But we are not so precise around how long we should spend sitting or not. And that's the research that's been going on in the last 10 years, a lot more of this. Now, this research project, it's one of the biggest studies of its kind, and it's taken more than four years to complete. What makes this piece of research so important, Seb? The, the latest guidelines in the United States, in the UK, in, 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 in for the World Health Organization, in Australia as well, all recognize the fact that we have to be physically active and that we have to minimize the amount of time we spend sitting because we found that there was a detrimental effect of too much time spent sitting. And that I seen quite quickly as soon as you sit, what we don't really un understand is what are the long-term implications of that. So the way we approached this, it was through a, um, a change in the way we were thinking about exercising about a day. Before that, we thought about exercising on one hand and sitting on the other hand. And what we did, is to actually think about the whole day. So if you imagine a day has got 24 hours and not a, a minute more. So as a human being, as I choose to engage in one activity or one behavior, say sitting, when I do that, I also choose to not exercise. So whatever changes I make to one behavior, I will also make a change to the other behavior. So there's it's kind of a communicating basis if you want. Or it's essentially, we, we uh, conceptualize this as a cocktail of time. So what is the best cocktail of time I should spend yeah, uh, in being physically active and sitting or doing something that is in between, which we call light activity, or that is essentially the activities of daily living, and how much time should I spend sitting, uh, sleeping? And that's, that was the, the real change in thinking going to this 24-hour paradigm and really understanding that these, these things are codependent. And that required a change in the kind of the mathematics behind that. So that took a while to sort out. And then we had to find enough data that were reliable to actually model this and try to understand what um, the consequences of this and what is the right balance. And exactly that's what we, we ended up with. It's a, a balancing act. How much time should I spend active and how much time should I spend sitting? And how do I balance these two things? That leads me perfectly on to my next question, Seb. How do we balance this? What is the perfect balance of sedentary behavior and exercise? That The, the, the perfect balance, uh, unfortunately, there's no such thing. We were <laughs> hoping for this. We were hoping for a, a perfect mixture, the, the perfect cocktail, the perfect recipe for a day. And we, we didn't quite get that, and that's understandable. What we got is, is essentially a, a scaling of things. So 
if you think about your day as being the most active as possible, the better it is. Yeah, there's very little risk on being too active. And that can be kind of exercise, but also simple activities of daily living, such as walking and minimizing the sitting. But you need to rest at some point. So that's not a, a possible picture to be on the go all the time. So you have to find yourself somewhere in between these extremes. And what we found is there are whole sorts of combinations you can play around this. So you can really adapt your daily living depending on what you have to do to actually try to balance three, four things. Exercising, light activity of daily living, sitting and sleeping. So we found that eight, around eight hours of sleeping between seven and nine is kind of okay. It's the best thing to do. That leaves you with around 16 hours to play with during the day. And then we found that the best way to calculate that is actually most often we are forced to sit by our employer or by, by, so we have less control over that. So if you think about the number of hours you are sitting, and then you decide to exercise three minutes for every hour you spend sitting in a day, that's about, that gets you on, on the same level as the, as the World Health Organization recommendations. Does it vary by person? Does it vary by gender? Does it vary about a person's weight? That's an incredibly good question. What we know is, it's never too late to start exercising. And the benefits are for the people that are the least uh, active to start with. And the people that already have like maybe weight issues or uh, uh, some, some, uh, some medical uh, conditions might be as a result already of not being very active. So we found a number of studies, not in, in our precise study, we were not able to actually tell for which subgroup that was true. But what we found is that it's, it's independent of whether you have a condition or not. So it's good for everybody. But we, in other studies, they found that actually the effect of physical activity is, is slightly stronger, if you want, in people that are already slightly compromised. So how can we put this research into practice? It sounds absolutely fantastic. And I love that term, cocktail of time. I think that's fantastic. But how can we put that into a practical context? Well, there, there are several things we can do in that respect. So. At the individual level, uh, I, I can I can just think about okay, but my, my office hours are nine to five or a bit more than that, and I doing that I know I'm going to sit about ten hours, so I've got to find twenty five minutes to exercise somewhere. So that's my personal point, and that that's my personal input. But we can do a lot more if we actually change the environment in which people um, work, live and uh, entertain themselves. So we can definitely promote more active commuting, for example, active transportations. Most of our cities in Europe, you can get around them in 15 to 20 minutes of cycling. So why take the car? We take the car because cycling is maybe not that easy or that it doesn't feel that safe. So we can improve the urban infrastructure a great deal in that respect. So there's a a lot of systemic things that need to be that need to be done to actually um, prevent and prevent a disease in the future through physical activity. We can change the way we work. So, uh, for example, in our workplace, we have standing desks that we can go up and down, and we're not forced to stand all day. We're not forced to sit all day. We can go up and down. So we can change the environment, but we can also change a lot of policies 
that, that would help in that respect. So if you think about a workplace scenario where employees are forced to sit by policy for a number of uh, hours because they can't leave their workstation even for a few seconds to stand up and walk about, that's not really sustainable in terms of health. So these things need to change. And the great thing about this is most of this investment is really cheap, but the, uh, the, the benefits are fantastic in terms of savings in health, but also in terms of saving in carbon and climate adaptation. If you were able to sum it up, Seb, what's the best guide you can give someone? Like if you are sitting for X number of hours a day, you should do Y minutes worth of exercise. Is it a quick and fast calculation that people can live by? Well, probably the best way to, do, to, to think about it is to start thinking about the amount of time you spend sitting because that's what we have to do most of the day. So think about a movie. You're going to spend uh, uh, watching a movie for an hour and a half, 90 minutes. And then basically you want to exercise three minutes for every hour you spend, you spend sitting. So in, in the case of a movie, you will want to exercise four and a half minutes to compensate for that movie. And you can carry on doing this for every hours you're sitting. So the hours you spend sitting at work or in transportation and just add them up together. And I'll give you a total of the amount of time you should be exercising or doing some light activity for a little bit longer. And essentially, if you get these two numbers right, the, the cocktail of your day will be worked out for you. Okay. Now, when you were doing the research, Seb, one of the instruments you used was an accelerometer. What is an accelerometer and how did it fit in with the process of gathering data? Okay, so we, we use accelerometers. They are essentially little uh, computer chip, essentially. And inside what there is, is essentially a spring and a mass. So you probably have heard of seismograph, uh, the, the things that people put in the ground to measure how the earth is shaking and preventing or uh, looking out for earthquakes. This is essentially the same thing on a much, much smaller scale that we attach to the body. <coughs> and that measures movement in the body. But that measures it in, in a way we, we call uh, objective. So we have a real pictures of the amount of movement an individual would do by uh, attaching a sensor to a, to, a, to a person. So actually a lot of people, you're never really far away from an accelerometer these days. Most of the phones, a smartphone have one you know, when it's twisting your phone and it's changing the orientation of your screen, that's the accelerometer inside the phone that tells the phone in which direction it is. So most people will be familiar with it. And there's a lot of uh, very simple commercial devices now that measure your physical activity um, on a daily basis. Now, there are a number of different researchers who worked in this project. And what was their input into this study? And can you tell me the benefits of working with people from so many different disciplines? Oh, okay, the, 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 the first benefit was our ability to gather enough data. So using accelerometer is not cheap. We, and it's a compli complicated procedure logistically. So we, we have to give it to people. They have to agree to wear it 24 hour a day, which is, which is a bit burdensome. And then they have to send it back to us so we can analyze it. And we're gonna make sure the battery is still alive. So there's loads of things that can go wrong. So. It's difficult to collect that amount of data. It's getting easier and we're getting better at it. But by working with colleagues from around the world, what we were able to do is actually to combine data that had already been uh, collected in different cohorts of, and not only 
these people had physical activity had been measured, but these people had been followed over time. So we knew exactly what happened to their medical history over a period of several years. So that allowed us to understand the health impact more clearly. And by having that diversity of data across countries, that gives us a little bit more um, certainty on the generalizability of our results. Now, some of the other research you've been working on recently was a link between physical activity and infectious diseases. And this is an incredible piece of research that has shown that regular exercise can reduce the risk of infection from diseases like COVID-19 by more than a third, and it can boost the effectiveness of vaccines. Hugely important research in the current climate. Could you, you talk about that? Yeah, that's an interesting um, thing, and uh, that's something we're very happy we have done. So, uh, as I said, we, we knew about the benefit of physical activity on for non-communicable diseases. That's undeniable. The evidence is there. And I was actually part of the expert group that put the guidance for, for the World Health Organization uh, recommendations. And we were doing this in February last year in Geneva and the headquarters of the, the World Health Organization, just as COVID-19 kicked off. And in the back of my head, when I came out of these meetings, I said, oh, our guidelines don't really touch anything about infectious disease. So I turned around to my colleagues and I just said, well, what do we know about this? And everybody looked at each other and went, actually, not sure. So immediately when I, when I returned to Scotland, I put an international team together and said, well, let's go and find out because we need to find out now. At the time, governments didn't really know what to do about, it was lockdown. And there was a lot of talk about closing parks and, 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 and not allowing people to go out and exercise. So the repercussion of that could have been great. So we put an international team together and did a really, really rapid piece of work in order to just to really synthesize everything we knew about that relationship between physical activity and infectious disease. There were not gonna be any data on COVID, but we could look at data on similar diseases that might have been uh, available. And we did that really quickly and try to quantify the amount uh, uh, of that relationship, quantify that relationship. So we, we did that piece of research very thoroughly and incredibly quickly because everybody was so motivated to help. And the results are staggering. Um, there, there had been a substantial amount of research done, but it was all scattered around. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the research was done actually on elite athletes because there was some concern about too much training and the possibility of falling ill. But there was a, an element of research that was applicable to the general public. So that's what we focused on. And at the end of the day, we, we, we noticed three key things. The first one is uh, big epidemiological studies taking uh, into account about five uh, about 500,000 people, so half a million individual as a sample, tell us that if you are physically active at the level of the World Health Organization recommendation, then your chances of uh, falling ill to an incommunicable disease, so to an infectious disease, mm -hmm. is reduced by 31%. And then your chances of having serious complications and dying of that infectious disease, mostly from pneumonia, uh, are reduced by 37%. So th this is an incredible number. It's not a surprising number, but it's an incredible number. It's really high. So that tells you the value, again, of exercise being a medicine. 
The second thing we noticed, we digged into the reasons for that. And we noticed that people that had been in randomized controlled trial, where they were given an exercise regimen, similar to the level of the World Health Organization recommendations, their first line of defense of their immune system was strengthened. So that tells us that there is something directly relating the strength of the immune system to the amount of exercise you do. So it's a good way of strengthening yourself, but also as a scale of a country to make the whole population a lot more resilient to uh, infectious disease. And finally, one of the way um, by which we that, that strengthening of um, the immune system is measured in, in a randomized controlled trial is by looking at the outcome of vaccination. And again, what we notice is that the people that had been given a regimen of, of activity before vaccination had a stronger response to vaccines. That means they, they had more antibodies after the vaccine. The vaccine were more efficient if you had exercised before. And I don't mean just before, I mean regularly before. So three good reasons to be, <laughs> three extra good reasons to, to be uh, physically active on a daily basis. What happens next then, Seb? We've got this fantastic piece of research. Again, how do we put that into practice? How do we get more people exercising to cut down on these uh, transmissible diseases? <laughs> that, that's the, that's the, the, the million dollar question because, um, and I, I'm, I'm, when I say million dollar, I should say billion dollar question <laughs> because that's essentially the cost of, physical inactivity. We know that physical inactivity is responsible for about 5 million deaths per annum. And that's probably an underestimate. So you imagine the cost of that, both in terms of economy and in terms of uh, a personal misery and burden for people. But we know that there isn't a sufficient amount of people that are physically active and the trend is in a slight decrease. And that trend has been accentuated by the COVID pandemic. So it is a billion dollar question. The most, the current thinking, and I think that the most, the most important thing is to shift away from this idea of asking people to change behavior because most people are not in an environment that is conducive to movement enough. So it doesn't matter how hard they try. That works for a, a, a fraction of the population that are either uh, extreme extremely well motivated or that have the resources to be able to be active. And by resources, I mean they can pay for a gym membership. They have a, a job that is good enough and that gives them enough time flexibility to go and exercise. When we ask people what are the barriers to physical exercise and physical activity, the, the top two answers are time and money. So the, 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 they're like the answers. So we need to make systemic changes to the way we live to allow more movement into our life. Uh, and by that, it means some things are gonna be maybe a bit less convenient, but we can make them a lot more fun as well. Seb, that was brilliant to talk to you. Hugely important research and it's great uh, to discuss it. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Craig. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be speaking with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and everywhere else. 
Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Thank you.